You're listening to the Boss Business of Surgery series, episode 68. Today, I talk with Dr. Sarah Rasmussen. She is a pediatric transplant surgeon. She shared a study with me from 2022 by Delman et al. from the University of Cincinnati in surgery 2022 that found that almost 25% of early career transplant surgeons experience attrition at a median time of 2.75 years. This was not from overwork, but under engagement as a risk factor for transplant surgeons. So she shared her experiences and her job and how maybe the wrong job is actually what the problem is. Welcome surgeons. Residency didn't teach us everything we needed to learn to be a successful surgeon. While we spent our time caring for patients and learning how to operate, we didn't learn how to advocate for ourselves or navigate our career. I'm your host, Dr. Amy Vertries. I'm a general surgeon, certified coach, and founder of the Boss Business of Surgery series. This is where you'll learn those lessons not taught in residency. Welcome back. I am so excited about this guest. We've been talking about this for a long time. This is Dr. Sarah Rasmussen. She is a pediatric transplant surgeon. I mean, can you imagine that? Like, why don't you find like the hardest things possible in surgery and combine them? and add research and add teaching and all the things. Anyway, so I've been a big admirer for a while and we have been chatting, um, you know, over, gosh, it's close to years now of the evolving aspects of different jobs. And so she, as you can imagine, you know, has had really challenging jobs and, you know, had a recent experience of, you know, maybe being in the wrong job and not recognizing it. And so I think her lessons of, you know, taking us through what happens when you find the job is maybe not the best match for you um, is really, really helpful because a lot of times we can sit there and think it's us, but, you know, when you start looking at, you know, other people's experiences that you can maybe see, oh, maybe this is what's happening for me. And, and I mean, she's got like a really remarkable hero's journey. So uh, I'm really excited to hear all about it. All right. Sarah, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, uh, thanks very much for that introduction, Amy. And you are definitely a big part of my hero's journey too. So we'll talk about that also. Um, But I am um, pretty much a prototypical Gen Xer. I was born in West Virginia. Um, Being a surgeon was never on my radar. My father was a physician and a Vietnam veteran. And my mom um, was initially a journalist and then later got her PhD in West Virginia history. And I always knew I was going to go to medical school and maybe practice medicine with my dad. Um, But I ended up um, being not engaged with the medical school curriculum and I wanted to do research. So I uh, entered the MD PhD program at WVU. in 1997 and the lab I chose was an HIV research lab and they as soon as I joined were recruited to um, the NCI to be part of this big new HIV research group so that was the first time in my life I really ever had to make a leap of faith which was to take my six-month-old marriage and move away from Morgantown to the National Cancer Institute to finish my doctoral work. And then when I finished that, I went back to Morgantown to do my clerkships thinking it's going to be infectious diseases and I'm going to be an HIV researcher. And then I did my surgery rotation. And uh, I just, I finally found the surgery in engaged all the parts of my brain. Um, It was the investigator, it was the technician, it was the compassionate person. um, And I ended up jumping tracks again and did a rotation at Johns Hopkins as a PG, as a MS4. uh, And then did my residency at Virginia Commonwealth University in Richmond, Virginia. And then I returned to Hopkins for my Pete surgery fellowship for two years. And then I was at University of Virginia as an assistant professor from 2011 to 2020. And during that time, I did an additional fellowship in abdominal transplant surgery. And for a while at UVA, um, I was clicking on all three tracks. I had a research program. I was clinically active. I was... um, uh, teaching medical students and residents. And then 
we began a pediatric liver transplant program at University of Virginia, kind of the first of its kind in the country, where we partnered with the Children's Hospital Pittsburgh, which is one of the largest pediatric liver programs in the country, um, to offer children liver transplant in the state of Virginia. At the time, there were no pediatric liver centers in Virginia. So for five years, I worked with them. And then an opportunity came up to uh, become the surgical director of pediatric liver transplant at Seattle Children's Hospital. And this was at the height of the pandemic. I think I signed my offer letter with Seattle. And two weeks later, the first case in Seattle was announced. And between the time of me accepting the position and actually moving, the country was in the height of the social distancing measures, um, which made it a really interesting time to make such a big transition. Boy, what an understatement. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. And I can imagine it must be very difficult for you to, you know, to have built this, you know, program at, at you know, UVA, all, all the, the contributions that you made to it, all the, the, the big changes that you made. And I know that you mentioned like with pediatric transplant, like the numbers of cases and things are important. And so what were you thinking when you made this move um, from there to, to Seattle? What were you hoping for in there? Yeah, I was facing there was a change in leadership in the transplant program at UVA and um, a couple of key recruitments where people wanted me to do less transplant and make room for, you know, partners. And it, it didn't, it wasn't undertaken in a way that was very um, give and take. It was more, Sarah, we want you to give up <laughs> and, cope with less. And at the time, and what it got whittled down to is, well, you're only going to do pediatric liver transplant. And we were doing five cases a year, and I was still in a very steep part of my learning curve. And just to contrast, before I was, uh, you know, transitioned out of adult liver transplant, in 2018, I was involved in 42 liver transplants in a year, which is actually pretty high volume for a surgeon. It was actually too much. And when I asked to, um, you know, whittle it down a little bit to maybe like with the national averages, which is 12 to 14 cases a year, um, it, it was it sort of became, no, we want you all the way out of adult liver transplant. You can just do peds. But by the way, we're hiring a new living donor liver surgeon who also wants to do peds. So you're going to have to share some of your cases with him. And as like, I didn't work this hard um, to not be legitimately um, the person who was the lead on the programs. So uh, I got approached by Seattle to look at their position because they had been underpowered. And when I looked at the numbers, um, they were doing 13 to 15 liver transplants a year and 30 pediatric kidney transplants a year. And they had the head of the program was someone who trained like me. He did Pete's surgery fellowship and a transplant fellowship. And I thought we would understand each other really well. The interviews seemed to go really well. And um, that's what led me to make that decision. I thought, okay, dwindling experience at University of Virginia, opportunity for more experience in Seattle. And what a great lesson that is, because I mean, you really clearly had a vision for what you wanted your career to look like and what you thought, you know, what meant what it meant to you to be a pediatric transplant surgeon, you know, what that experience looked like. And, you know, I think a lot of people don't really, you know, take that level of vision of their career. Um, so you can't compare when something starts changing because your jobs are always changing and you could have accepted that as status quo, but you know, what you said is like, no, this is actually not what I envisioned in my career. So it makes sense that you would go for a change. So take us through how that went, you know, what were your um, expect, expectations of the program and when did it start, you know, realizing that they weren't being met? Um, at Seattle Children's. Okay, so my first day of work at Seattle Children's was May 1st, 2020. Um, and when I arrived, at first it felt really good. They had decorated my office. People were happy to see me. And on my second day there, it was a Saturday, they were doing a liver kidney transplant in a child. And I didn't have my credentials yet. I had sent all my stuff and they'd had it for weeks, but they hadn't 
approved me yet. So I was not allowed to scrub. And I, but I stood and I watched and I have to say, watching the dynamics between the, the two surgeons, I was a little concerned because it was very much a, um, seemed like one person, one person was doing the case and one person was assisting. And I was very much used to a very fluid interplay of roles. Um, but I thought, well, this is early. We're just going to see how it goes. And I told myself I was going to be a real go-getter, really involved. I was going to um, throw myself in with both feet and put faith in the fact that I'd been heavily vetted, put faith in the fact that there was a connection between Seattle Children's and the people uh, in Pittsburgh who vouched for me. Um, and I didn't keep score at first. I just showed up and, and helped where I could help. Uh, but then after about 12 months, I realized slowly, like, it doesn't matter if I show up, uh, my experience is always the same. And it doesn't matter if I'm on call and doing the rounds, my decisions are subject to micromanaging on the back end. And my requests for time off because I have three kids and planning vacations was complicated. Um, we're sort of not met with great executive function. Um, you know, if it was an emergency, we could manage. But if I asked for a certain block of time off, there were unwritten rules about what I could and couldn't have. Um, and I don't ask for a lot of time off. Um, and then I started being told, well, you can't come to certain transplants because the fellows need them. Um, and this is their experience too. We can't hurt the fellows. But in the meantime, I was still doing what I could to carry my weight. I, you know, would go to clinic, I would see consults, I would make rounds. And even when I wasn't on call, if there was a liver transplant, I would come to um, help with the back table or scrub in and, you know, just show my, you know, enthusiasm and interest. And it's important for me to see every case. I really believe that because every case in pediatric liver transplant is different. And there's always something to learn. Um, this is actually a really great lesson. Um, you know, when you have this idea of what your role is going to be and your idea of what, you know, success looks like for you. And, you know, you, end up in this place that's, you know, somewhat established and, you know, gosh, the pandemic and they're just for fun. Um, then you have trainees and, and things like that. You know, this idea of like, I want to do these things and doing this is important to me. And then when you find yourself, okay, well, I'll just do this. Well, no, you can't. And okay, well, then I'll do this. Well, you know, you're, you know, like you can imagine what happens like over time and you don't see it right away. Like, you know, you're, you're at the new place, you want to accommodate a little bit and, you know, you don't want to go in there guns blazing, everything should change for me. But then, you know, it sounds like over time you started realizing maybe this is actually not going to change. Maybe they don't yeah. know what to do with me. Yeah. If I had one like regret to express is that I should have been more curious about the position. I should have asked a lot more questions instead of just trying to mind read and guess what would get me what I wanted. Um, and then maybe there could have been a shared mental model formed between me and my partners there that might've been more successful. Um, but by the time I went to them and said, look, this isn't really working for me. Um, I, I think it wasn't working for them either. And it, it didn't go the way I planned. So after I'd been there about 18 months and I had, I had brought it up a few times, like, you know, gosh, we only do 13 livers a year. Could we chop the cases up so that one of us is working on the hepatectomy as the primary and then we'll pivot and then you know another person's turn will be to sew it in and then we can pivot uh who's doing the back table and it was always the, the answer was always the same no whoever's on call does the case it will never change and that message became very loud and clear um 
you know, we are not going to change how we do this for your experience. And on some level, I resented that because was I a new partner or was I not? Um, you know, do I bring value uh, with my ideas and my way of approaching things or do I not? Like, why was there not room to explore new ways of doing things that honestly, I do still believe are the better way to do things. Um, but I still really thought that I could get them to change. <laughs> so I thought, oh, what they need is data. They don't believe me. So I, about 18 months in, I, I went and I pulled every transplant we had done since I arrived and the, my roles and I, I showed it to my leadership. I said, look, you know, we've done this many cases and I've been on call 33% of the time, but I've only done, um, you know, 20% of the livers and I've done like 15% of the kidneys and I am concerned. I, I, I put so much thought into it. I said, I'm concerned that this is not enough volume for someone that's supposed to be a surgical director. And the response I got was not what I expected. Um, it, it just intensified the scrutiny on me um, and what I was or wasn't able to do. And there became scrutiny about, do I feel comfortable doing certain cases by myself? Do I feel comfortable, um, you know, um, performing certain aspects of the operations and um, that became a challenge I had to overcome. That's an excellent lesson for people to, you know, kind of take away with because, you know, it, you, you're there like over a year into this job, you know, having this, this sensation, this feeling that I don't think that they have faith in me and, you know, what is going on here? But you kind of took this, the initiative to say like, but I know the numbers and I know what my numbers should be. And I, you know, this is my expectation. And I mean, your expectations were not met, but it also sounds like they had a perception of you. Um, and, you know, simply at the very least was an expectation mismatch. Um, yeah. You know, we, we all do the mind reading. We all have this idea of what, you know, who our partner should be, who the job should be, or like what the job should be. And, you know, we all have these perceptions that we think everyone else does have. And, you know, <laughs> What a surprise when we find that is actually not the case. <laughs> right. All right. Yeah, so, no, yeah. One of the most, like my favorite piece of advice to give people now who ask me is make sure you know what job you're coming to do. Like okay. if you don't really have a good idea and the, the no question is too small or too, too trivial. If, if it, if it's come up in your mind is something you want to know about the job express the curiosity and say, how, how do you approach cases here? How do you divide them up? You know, um, you know, definitely it's appropriate for the most senior person in a liver transplant program to be involved in most of the cases. And I would have expected to hear that um, my, my boss was going to be present for almost all of them, if not all of them. But I also would have expected that he's going to be facilitating my um, gradual independence um, in a new program. Now, and it's fascinating to see, like, you know, I, I wrote a, a, po a post maybe a long time ago talking about like how your partner can actually make you a worse surgeon. And, you know, what happens is, is that if your partner like doesn't have the same expectations of what you're going to do that you do, you know, that mind reading can kind of get, take it to the level of, you know, they don't trust me, they don't do this. And then all of a sudden, you know, we start doubting ourselves, or, you know, we could easily feed into this, you know, lack of confidence and, and, you know, they don't trust me and what's wrong with me. Um, yeah. And so like, did you find yourself in that place where you started to wonder and how did you get out of it? Yeah, I don't think I got to a place where I wondered if I was not as good as I thought I was. Um, actually, ironically, I've had that thought a little bit more often in, in my new position. Um, 
but I think that's because in my new new position, I'm finally feeling comfortable that I can really explore explore my own internal workings a little bit more. But I did get to the point where I was hyper aware that every variable you introduce into a transplant program can have unintentional impact. Um, and that includes a variable of a new team. Um, that includes a variable of how we set up the back table or what suture we use for certain parts of the case. Um, and things that I did all my training, um, so over 10 years, so much so that it was second nature, they absolutely did not do at Seattle Children's and wouldn't tolerate me doing. And I'm thinking specifically of how they passed ties. Like I always pass them on a tonsil and they absolutely only ever pass them with a forceps. And the first time I asked for a tie on a tonsil, um, it was grabbed out of my hand. Mm -hmm. And that was an experience that I haven't really I've had only once or twice in all of my training and it's not a pleasant experience. You know, it's one thing to experience that as the transplant fellow, someone else taking something out of your hand. But as a surgeon who's been in practice independently for 10 years to have someone grab something out of your hand just because they don't like how you're about to do something, that sent a message too about how they saw me. Um, and then I, in my new position, and I'm going back to passing ties on a tonsil. Like it, it, you know. So I had the insight and the knowledge to understand there actually is more than one way to do something. <laughs> but I'm coming into a system that's only ever done things one way, and they did not have that flexibility. Um, but then they also did not have the um, the they they didn't feel their obligation to bring me online with how they do certain things. Like I had to find out in the moment through correction instead of ahead of time. Um, right. And when did you start getting the vibe that this, you know, these smaller messages were, you know, kind of becoming a little bit bigger and, you know, what was the final straw that said, I don't think this is going to be the environment for me. I went around trying to ask for help just for someone to listen to my perspective. And um, even the people who would actually listen ended up saying, Sarah, it's just never going to change. It's not going to be the way you envision it. And you are never going to get the experience that you want to have. And I have always envisioned myself, I wanna be a pediatric liver transplant surgeon. And for me, the immutable thing there is I have to be involved in the cases in a way that is meaningful to me. And I actually, that's when I, it was January, 2021. Um, I had, it, you know, in a field that where there had been no jobs for all my career, all of a sudden there were potentially four. And I was asked to look at all four of them. And I thought, oh my God, there's no way I can ask my family to move again. Mm -hmm. um, it was such a traumatic thing to move. It was such a traumatic thing to move during the pandemic. Um, and I, you know, the kids are just barely back in school and I cannot do this. So in my mind, that was initially an absolute, absolutely not, <laughs> an absolutely. And that's when I got your email about the difficult partner course. And I, I remember sitting on the couch, looking at my husband going, I think I need to take this course because this course will help me figure out what I'm doing wrong so that I can be uh, successful and make some progress in Seattle and maybe make some changes in myself that will help me um, have the career I wanted to have here. And he looked at me and he's like, yeah, I think you should take it too. <laughs> and I, I, I remember telling you, I'm in our little opening course, I'm here to figure out how to stay at Seattle. And you actually asked me, um, well, is that, is that the right answer? <laughs> um, and, and I gave myself permission to go on these four job interviews and um, it, it was really fascinating um 
two of them felt like they weren't going to be a good fit from the get-go, and two of them felt like they could potentially be an excellent fit. But uh, one, from the moment I had my first conversation with my new boss, uh, I just was like, this is the person I want to work with. This is the person I can see myself um, working with for the next, hopefully, 15, 20 years. Um, and that's when I started to say to myself, okay, I can bang my head against the wall for the next 10 or 15 years in Seattle and watch them hire another surgeon um, while ignoring the things that I've been asking for support with or we can um, take the leap again. And it was actually, uh, this; these decisions were impacting my health. I was having panic attacks on rounds that were manifesting as chest pain. Um, I started monitoring my blood pressure at home and my blood pressure was out of control high. Um, and I was one night um, when the clinic schedule and the call schedule came out, um, I made the mistake of opening it at 11 o'clock at night and my husband and I are getting ready to go to bed and I could not calm down. And I like went downstairs and I had a drink of water and my heart was still pounding and I, you know, did all the mindfulness breathing and, uh, it just would not go away. And I'm like, well, okay, now I'm going to take my blood pressure. And I, Checking my heart rate was 197 and my blood pressure was like 190 over 110. And my husband looked at that and he's like, we are done here. We are done. This has never been you. And there were other things going on. Um, one of my transplant mentors passed away at far too young an age that same month. And um, my mom in West Virginia was sick. Um, but that was that was the moment where it's like, okay, it does not matter what I do here. I've done everything I can do. I've talked to people. I've shown up. I've, um, I'm in the coaching. Why would I stay when increasingly the messages I'm getting are, we are not going to change how we do things for your career. And to me, that was a breach of contract. Um, you know, it, institutions aren't going to invest in people. I don't believe that, but teams need to invest in their team members. And if I was a member of a team um, and I had done everything I could possibly do to change and it wasn't going to meet me halfway, then that, that was the breach. That, that was the moment. And I mean, you got such a, a great story um, with so many lessons in this too, of, of just, you know, especially when you start being, you know, stable at an area, especially when you have, you know, a spouse and children, you know, like our decisions affect so many other people too. So, you know, like trying to decide like, when do, when do my thoughts and expectations matter, um, you know, more than the family? And of course, it's always the wrong question to ask, because if we ask our family, which we typically don't, you know, really what they want, they just want us to be happy and fulfilled because then we're able to be there for them more than, you know, a location. And, you know, what are the lessons that you learned when it came to, you know, overcoming this internal objection that, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to like basically hurt my family um, if, if we leave. Navigating that in the pandemic um, made it hard for them to build community and they had built community in Seattle and they were in a school that, that was supporting them. Um, and I, every time I thought about telling my oldest kid that we might be moving again, I got viscerally nauseous. <laughs> um, and then one night we were talking and my kid looked at me and said, mom, I think it's time for you to worry about yourself. I'm going to be okay. <laughs> and it was like a weight sliding off my shoulders. But what I did do is I told the two places that I ended up really coming down to a decision you you have to bring my whole family out on the second visit not just my spouse and my my kids are old enough now that they they need to see uh me go through this and they need they need to feel it too and um that was probably the first time i 
one of the first times I asked for something I was pretty sure wasn't allowed, right? Like who brings kids on a second visit? But I actually got some, I reached out to a pediatric hepatologist in the field who know, knew both places. And I asked him, um, you know, what did you, what do you think? Like, I always was told you shouldn't go on second visits unless you really think you're going to end up there. And I knew I was going to end up at one play, one, one of the places, but I wasn't sure. And I'm like, I, the last thing I want, cause I respect people at both institutions. I'm like, I don't want them to feel like I'm about to play them off each other. And I don't want to come across as disingenuous. And he said, there's absolutely nothing wrong with you asking them both to bring your families out there. I mean, it's not, it's not too much to ask. And I'm like, Oh, well, okay. It's not too much to ask. Well, I'm going to ask. <laughs> And it happened. And I was really grateful to both places for doing that. I mean, because in the end, it's like to, it's trying to match the right place. You know, if bringing your family is going to keep you from going to a place that you wouldn't be a good fit for, it actually saves them money in the long run. You know, we don't think about that too, but because we think of, you know, what our impression is going to be, you know, in their mind, but really, I mean, we have a common goal, which is like, is, is this a good fit? And whatever it takes to decide that is probably going to cost a lot less in the end. Right. Now, um, what would you, what advice would you give to someone who is thinking, I really, maybe I need to make a job change and, you know, what should I do about my family? You know, what is the advice you would have to someone who is like, what, you know, can I think about me? Is this okay? And, you know, what should I do? What would you, what advice would you give them? Yeah. I mean, the, the advice that I got was, uh, how happy do you think your family can be if mom is not happy? And that's one of those things that was a little harder to internalize than I thought. Like, you know, uh, well, how happy does mom get to be if it's mom's fault or in this situation to begin with? Mm-hmm. One of the pieces of information that many people offered me, um, and I ended up being able to offer it to myself is, you know, lots of kids have to move more than once in their childhood. And that's not the thing. The thing is making sure there's a place for them to land. And, um, you know, in fact, my oldest would listen, like when I sat down and told them in Virginia that we were going to move to Seattle and they said, I don't want to do that, mom. But when I told them the whole story, <clears throat> my oldest said, Oh my God, you can't stay here. <laughs> um, actually, uh, I, I had forgotten, um, the, the moment of the breach in Virginia was the moment when my, uh, reputation was untacked in a way that I thought was unfair yeah. and it was similar in Seattle. So I think I know right now really what my non-negotiable is you know uh, someone who is has such high standards for the care they deliver um, and such high standards for how we assess things we cannot assess things based on our emotions we have to be objective um but i just realized that actually um it's fascinating to think, you know, like the thought errors that happen when we have kids of, you know, I have to, I have to sacrifice myself so they'll be okay. And, you know, what happens is we sacrifice ourselves, and we, it's the example that we're setting for our kids that, you know, you have to give in to everyone else, even though you know that this is not the right answer for you, you know, you have to do something so someone else doesn't have to. Um, and, you know, because even then it's like, it falls on us like, well, yeah, we're here because I made this decision and now I'm going to make another decision. And now you're going to have to, you know, suffer the consequences of it too. It's that internal fear that we have about how, like as parents, I mean, your worry instead of the I mean, part of it's safe, but then like, I'm going to ruin their entire lives by doing this. Yeah. <laughs> and the reality is um, maybe the pandemic ruined a year of their lives and not the move. Like imagine how much different it might've been to move to Seattle when there was no pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, there would have been more things to do. Schools would have been open. We might've, you know, okay. So that the pandemic was everywhere. Social distancing was everywhere. Um, 
And imagine if, you know, I, I also, when we moved, I, I didn't realize this till we got to Seattle. My oldest kid told me they'd been getting bullied in their school. And, um, you know, as a transplant surgeon fielding donor offers during the pandemic, I, I felt the mental health crisis in our youth on a whole other visceral level. Um, and I don't know what would have become of the mental health of my, you know, then 13 year old if we'd stayed in Virginia, um, given that I was never aware of the bullying we were getting. There's a lot of things to be grateful to Seattle for. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a lot of things to be, you know, it's not a bad thing to live in different parts of the country and really experience them. That's a good thing. And I think that comes to the, you know, the, the lessons, both the people that around you at work learned, and we can start first what your kids learned, because, you know, in the end, I know that you kind of evolved to this is, you know, what were you teaching your children when you moved? I mean, what were the, some of the lessons that you taught them? And that when you're not happy with how you're being treated, you can vote with your feet. Yeah. And that that's okay. And that it's, that it's an act of strength. It's an act of love too. And, and it was think, interesting. Yeah. All I, the things that you told them about, like, you know, being conscious of what they thought too. It's like, I really care about your opinion in the end though. You know, my job as a parent is to show you that it's okay to leave if, yeah. if you're not, it's okay to take care of yourself. Right. I mean, I think that we miss that lesson is that when we take care of ourselves, we're also giving them permission to take care of themselves too. That's definitely true. And it actually, I think it, it's opened up a lot more conversations between my kids and us as parents. Um, like we, we do have very blunt conversations and I think my kids have learned a lot about their own boundaries through this whole process too, which is another lesson I learned. I think one of the most loving things I could teach my kids is that it's okay to say no, even to me sometimes. And that's got to be the hardest person to say no to is your parents. Yes, we, we think that we can control their experience and the learn. But sometimes, yeah. you know, if we stop trying to do it, then the lessons actually reveal themselves. Um, what effect did it have on the people around you? Because I know that, you know, you had this environment, um, you know, what were some of the things that people told you, like when you decided to make the decision with your feet? Yeah, I, um, yeah, it was a hard decision. Um I, I carried my offer letter around in my pocket thinking there must still be a way to make it work here in Seattle. I don't have to be so, I didn't, it doesn't have to be so drastic, but then um, when I, I signed it, I felt like this excitement and this anticipation. I started telling people and um, you know, people would say, we're sorry to lose you because I did bring some things that had been missing. Um, but they also, a few, what one, one of the co-surgeons in particular reached out to me and he said, um, you know, we've been watching what you're, um, navigating and we understand why you did this and there's no hard feelings and um I consider you my friend and we we all see it um and that was nice to hear it was also like wow would it have been so expensive to say that to me six months ago yeah (laughs) but oh that message we all see it because you know I think that when you're in that and you're in a cycle and you're worried about, you know, what's happening to you and what people are saying, and you feel like you're an island by yourself and you're isolated. I mean, what a powerful message for someone to say, you know, I see it. I saw, I saw what you went through. Um, I can only imagine how gratifying that was. Yeah, it was gratifying. Um, And it, it also made me sad because 
that was a person I would have enjoyed working with if I'd had more opportunity. Um, he and I actually did a few cases together right at the end and they all went really well. And he was sort of my generation. So on some level, I, why, why weren't we just positioning the two of us to kind of take the program forward into the next 20 years, but that's not how it seems to be getting navigated. So um, it, it is what it is. <laughs> and, you know, I know like um, having like known you throughout the, the process is, you know, like deciding like, I'm going to do this for me. And I'm going to do this for my family. Who's going to going to have to have faith that this is the right decision. And, but I know it's the right decision. And, you know, you stop looking for permission from anybody else and looking for validation from anyone else. And when you left is when you got the validation. And I think a lot of times we don't see the downstream effects that we have on other people, because, you know, I know that um, the department did have some changes after you left, probably because you left. And, you know, I think a lot of times we don't see it, but because it's uncomfortable the time, but when we start really speaking up for what we think is right and it doesn't work and we leave, this is actually not, you know, a failure. And it doesn't mean the change isn't going to happen. It's just now the change is going to happen without us. Um, We allowed the system to change, but we were not there to participate in it. So, you know, recognizing that you had the opportunity to see some of the downstream effects um, that you initiated. Yeah. No, I think um, I tried to leave on collegial terms um, in a way that didn't burn bridges because in the end, I did get a lot out of working there. I I mean, maybe I wasn't the lead surgeon on all the liver transplants, and but I did see so much um, and learned a lot with the exposure up to, you know, all the conditions and how sick kids could get. And my, my new position has really benefited from that experience I had. Um, and I, you know, think that in the end, it was probably a really valuable career move um, Mm -hmm. for me to go there. This is why I always encourage people like, you know, before you leave your job, before you quit, you know, reach out and get coaching and mind work to allow yourself to really work through this before you go. So you can actually make some of these changes before you go. So you don't go to the other job and have all this, you know, regret and looking backwards that you can actually start to see, you know, answer the questions. Why is this job not a good fit specifically for me? You know, what is it that I'm not getting, which is really just a way of saying, this is what I actually want, you know, right. and and we've talked about this exercise before about the art of complaining, you know, complaining tells you what you want and what you want tells you what your greatest desire is. And so yeah. you know, once we start realizing that we can actually, you know, speak up about things that bother us and that will actually show us the way forward. And sometimes it is through, you know, this art of um, <laughs> processing our negative thoughts but it allows you to leave a place with closure so you can leave and actually really close that door and move on and and have the ability to look back and say, I see why this was relevant in my life. And not only has it, you know, positively affected my life, but you know, a lot of times when we're a true and authentic self, it positively affects other people too. Right. Yeah. I was actually really grateful for one of the last cases I did, um, did there with, um, my boss because it was a really complicated case, a kid that needed a mesocable shunt and, you know, reoperative, reoperative, reoperative abdomen. And um, having made the decision that, you know, having accepted the position, you know, moving truck date is set and, you know, I'm just winding down my time. My expectations of that case were, very low. They in fact were so low that I didn't expect to be involved. Um, but then he he called me and asked if I would be around to help. And I'm like, well, that's different. <laughs> um, but I go and um, I'm, I'm not the first assist. He's doing the case with a fellow, which is 
truly a testament to his skill and experience that he would do such a complicated case with a fellow. Um, and, you know, for about five minutes, I indulged myself in the, well, why am I even here? Why did he call me here? And then I was, I remembered one of my most important mentors who was by my side in the first 20 liver transplants I did. And he was always just doing little things to make it easier. I'm like, okay, well, that's what I'm going to do. So I picked up the forceps and I improved the exposure a little bit. And I, you know, had the extra suction and I, I didn't stay aloof to the case. I did what I could do. And we were expected for that case to take about 10 or 11 hours and we were done in four. Um, so that was a really valuable lesson. Uh, I came to the OR with a different mindset of, I don't have to be, um, this isn't about me and my experience anymore. I've made my decision and I'm leaving. Um, but I, going to make it about the patient and um and it really made a difference and I, I know one of the biggest lessons that um you know the most powerful thoughts i think that i've heard in a long time was one that you had of you know i have the power to positively influence other people yeah you know i mean i think once we step outside of ourselves and realize like what am i doing here like what what do i have to offer and i think that you know like no one needs to change for that you know it it is just acknowledging the fact of your influence. And, you know, I think that once we step into the power that we have, which is the ability to influence other people, you started recognizing what you have to offer, which is the power to positively influence other people. And, you know, what a lucky new partner you have. So you tell tell us now <laughs> about your, you know, I know that um, you've mentioned that, that this is your ideal partner. And we talked a little bit about the reasons why, but give us some idea of why he is, you know, your ideal partner and, and how that's been going. Yeah, I think um, when I when I called him, you know, he was also recently departed um, the other hospital that I was looking at for a position, and um, I, I I I called called him and I said, hey. Um, I'm looking at a position at your old institution. I'm wondering if you would share your perspectives, um, if you don't mind. And you know, while we're at it, I I noticed that you're starting a new program, and that must be a lot of work for one person. Maybe you need a partner. <laughs> and so I would love to talk to you about whether or not you might be recruiting a new person anytime soon. And he right off the bat was very responsive. Um, we had a great conversation. He told me the positives and negatives of his prior institution. Um, but then he also talked to me about all the energy and vision he had for his new program. And I felt re that that was something I hadn't felt um, since I was at UVA helping build this new pediatric liver program there. And I was really excited about it. And, and I'm like, okay, I'm going to, you know, here's, I'm talking to someone who has dreams too. And talking to someone who, um, you know, very candidly said that he's comfortable working with a team. Like it's very, it's just like, it's all about the team. Uh, and he upfront said, you know, you, tell me what you need out of a case. And, you know, that's what will happen. Uh, he's like, my, I don't need to have cases go a certain way. Um, I, I, I'm all about the team and the high functioning team, because that's how we deliver the best care. And, you know, that, that's how I've always been. I don't, I don't need to make things about me. <laughs> but I want to feel like a valuable part of the team. Yeah. And you can see the contrast too. Like one is, you know, a hierarchical, like, you know, everyone's trying to figure out their place. And this other is this idea of when two different visions where, you know, you're now entering this place where you have a shared vision and you can actually feed off of the shared vision. Um, and I know that, uh, you know, with 
as all things, you know, especially the complexity that you that you deal with, you know, what was it like um, dealing with this partner through like things like complications? Like, how was he different in that respect, um, and how did that help you? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I did have one serious complication uh, on my very first liver transplant with him, and um, I did all the things I tend to do when I have a bad complication, which, you know, I'm, I feel lucky. I don't have that many bad complications in my career, but I've had a couple. Um, and I, I always approach first, like, what could I have done differently? What could I control so that this never happens again? And I, I think that comes from a pure place, but it, it, it's also really easy for your brain to, um, take that to a not productive place, a place where all of a sudden you don't do anything right. And can you trust yourself? And should you even be doing this? And um, when I, when we had this complication, uh, I, I really felt I needed to go to my new partner and talk to him about it and break it down and explain um, how it would never happen again. And uh, he wouldn't let me isolate myself. He, you know, made, he kept coming by, uh, my office and we would go get coffee and we would actually not talk about the complication. And, um, you know, he, he heard what I was saying, um, but, and made space for it, but didn't, um, didn't participate in the narrative. And then eventually it was, um, these things happen to everyone and it's time to stop. I love it. Yeah, <laughs> this, I mean, say the words, it's time to stop. But he, I was sitting at his desk and he's like, uh, I've seen this complication before. It's, you know, it's, uh, not that he's like, and, and, you know, look at the kids. She is doing great. Like she walked into our clinic on Friday and, um, so clearly we managed the complication well. Um, I love that. Time. I mean, what a great, like, I mean, everyone should learn from, from your partner on how to help someone through a complication. Like I mean, the, the idea of just holding space and I'm not going to let you be alone and wallow in this, but you know, I'm going to also give you the, the room that you need to grow and then, you know, okay, now you've had your room. Now you need to stop. Right. <laughs> Which we all, I mean, we'll get stuck in there if we don't. And so, you know, I think that he didn't lead with that. You need to stop. You know, he kind of led at the end and saying, all right, you know, I'm here for you. We all get it. I've been there, but, you know, life still goes on. And right. look and, and and really just showing you the evidence that you needed to see of like, look at this person who is fine because of all the things that you did. Right. And he didn't, <clears throat> I never felt at any moment that some great judgment was being made about my overall competence. Um, it was just something that was unfortunate and it happened. Um, and I presented the M&M on it. And I think I brought a really good discussion uh, because I found a couple of good review papers that had a lot of great information. I mean, I think it did turn into a learning experience for everybody. Yeah, that's great. And I know also um, a big challenge that we have is, you know, having to navigate like evolving technology and, you know, changing our practices or our lifetime practices that we learn, because goodness knows we're all not doing the same things we did in residency, you know, the, the further we are getting out. So, you know, what was it like for him to, and, and not just him, but, you know, the, in that environment, you know, how was the support in, in taking on some of these big cases and doing things, you know, like laparoscopic instead of open and doing things like, you know, different ways. What was your experience in that? Yeah, he, um, <clears throat> like my first time on call for pediatric surgery, I um, got this consult for a like a 1.6 kilogram baby with duodenal atresia. And uh, I've never tackled a case that small uh, laparoscopically, although I had done um, laparoscopic duodenal atresia at my first institution in Virginia. <clears throat> and um at first, he told me, uh, just do it open. Um, 
it, it'll be faster, get it done. Um, can't, I can't wait on, yeah, we can't, we can't, baby can't wait and take up a NICU bed to, to grow big enough to, to make laparoscopic worth it. <clears throat> and I, I kind of agreed, but the Pete surgery fellows wanted to do it laparoscopically <clears throat> and we're really lucky um, in my current institution. I have great expertise, national expertise in MIS. So I asked one of those surgeons, um, you know, would you consider collaborating with me on this case? And that's also a testament to the environment I was in because instead of being encouraged to transfer care of the case, I was facilitated to do the case at the highest level. Um, and I did some research and I, I learned all the data that really does support this one particular repair being done laparoscopically in terms of uh, hospital stay and days still feeding. It makes a big difference. Um, and it's still very rarely done. Like only 13% of duodenal treasure repairs in the United States are done laparoscopically. Mm -hmm. But after doing the research and convincing myself that this is really what's best for this kid, even if I have to give up the case, I went back to my boss and I said, uh, you know, I really want to tackle this minimally invasively. I think it's what's best for the kid. And he's, and zero pushback. Yeah, that's, he's like, okay, great, set it up. <laughs> and then he even came and watched us do it. And the kid did do well. And fast forward, that was three months ago. Fast forward to this week, I've got a consult to take a gallbladder out of an eight-week-old baby. And I'm hemming and hawing like oh that's such a small baby to do a lap coley and he's listening to me and he looks at me he's like three months ago you did a lap duodenal treasure repair and a 1.6 kilo baby get over it <laughs> uh -huh. I mean, sometimes we need that you know like our, our internal doubts which you know are keeping everybody safe you know can also hold us back and you can see what happens if, is if we don't you know, allow ourselves to work at the top of our license, you know, in the safety with other people helping us out, because, you know, exactly what you found is that you could do the research and you could find people to help and you can get the encouragement. And then all of a sudden, you know, what seemed hard last week is not hard anymore. Um, and then, you know, next week could be better. And that's really, really how we get better is recognizing that there's always going to be a little bit of discomfort, you know, and, and we're not doing anything unsafe, you know, we're really like, understanding what needs to happen using the the skills that we already have using the experts we have and then having people who support us in you know like really navigating these things um so each day we can get a little bit better than we were the day before um and you know that really is a testament to a, a strong and supportive environment it, it really is and i think i can think of half a dozen little ways he's encouraged me to you know get out of my head and I think what makes it work is early on, we were at a meeting and uh, I said, I made some observation about dynamics around the table. And he's like, wow, you really think about things. And I said, yeah, I really think about things. He's like, probably too much. And I, I literally, I just said, well, buckle up because that's who I've always been. <laughs> and he laughed. And, um, but I think, it was okay for me to say that to him in that moment. And it was okay for him to hear it. And now at the right moments, he's telling me, okay, now is one of those times to get out of your head. <laughs> You've thought about this enough. <laughs> and it's good for me to hear it in a way that isn't uh, a put down. Yeah. Um, it, isn't, it isn't me being indecisive. It's me being thoughtful. Um, yeah, I, I definitely think that, majority of our strengths can be perceived as weaknesses in the wrong eyes. And, you know, I think that you have so many strengths and he sees them, but he can also see when you're turning this into a weakness. And a lot of times we can't see that ourselves, you know, right. having those, those people around us um, are, are the ones that make good partners, the ones that I see what you're doing and, you know, good for you, but stop. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. No. And, there, and there are times he leans on it. So when we have to write a, a policy or justification for a request, he leans on me to at, make the ask and word the ask and make it stronger. And, and that's a way that um, he sees my strength as a strength and uses it. Yeah. 
I mean, I think that's true for like, whether it's a work partner or a home partner, you know, they, they see us and for who we are, accept us for who they are, but they just make us better. And, you know, what's not to like about that? (laughs) Nothing. (laughs) You like all the things about that. And, you know, I think that uh, you've addressed a lot of the limiting thoughts that I know that we all have. Like, I can't move because it's going to hurt my family. You know, I can't ask for things because, you know, it'll say something about me. You know, I can't have an ideal partner. I just have to work with what I have. You know, there's, there's so much of this um, that I think that people are going to take away. And I knew you'd have, you know, a great story for all those reasons. So, I mean, I hope that you're kind of sitting back and appreciating your hero's journey a little bit. And I know that you're going to catch someone along the, the way, um, all these lessons that you've already learned. Um, it's going to be an exponential effect on other people. So I'm so grateful you came and talked about it. Yeah. Thank you, Amy. I appreciate it. And I have, um, it's, it's a valuable exercise to reflect on just how far I've come and not a very long amount of time. So. It just goes to show you that you can make some pretty life altering things in a short period of time with a little bit of help. Yeah. <laughs> All right. And so I, I'm interested, we'll probably end up having a follow-up because I imagine you're probably not done with all your life lessons. <laughs> no, probably not. Yeah, probably not. It's- all right, Dr. Rasmussen, so glad that you came by to talk to us today. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. For more information about the Boss Business of Surgery series, go to bosssurgery.com.